Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you were blessed by today's sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It is great to see so many folks here um, on a long weekend. So the first time um, Mary Jane and I decided to take a trip with our son, Park, he was way too young. We may have been way too young. Um, we got in a car and we started driving. We were living in Paris, Texas, and we were driving to um, see my folks down in College Station. And about Sulphur Springs, which is about 30 minutes away, um, it took us it was about 30 minutes in mileage. It took us about an hour and a half because Park started screaming as soon as we got in the car. And he screamed and screamed and screamed. And I can remember distinctly, Mary Jane, we pulled over. We were sitting in a McDonald's parking lot in Sulphur Springs. And I can remember thinking to myself, I've made a terrible mistake. I should not be a father. I can't do this. I don't know that I'm going to be able to raise him. Like, I, I think this is too much for, for me and, and for Mary Jane. Like, this is a, a problem. And so we finally kind of go, do we turn back around and just go home or do we keep pushing forward? Finally, we made it. And that's kind of the story of raising three little boys. We watched them as babies and each time go, God, we took on more than we should have. You know, one was hard, two's even harder, and three, we went from a man governed to zone and we're not going to make it. But we watched these babies and they would wrestle around and they would fight and we'd have laughter and we'd have all these things that happen as babies. And there were long nights of Mary Jane having to get up and feed um, the babies and I didn't help a whole lot, I'm sorry to say. And there were a lot of diapers and, and it was a fun time, but I was ready for them to get a little bit older. I was ready for them to go out on their own. I was ready for them to begin to walk and do things and suddenly they did. And I can remember someone saying to me one time, we were at a at a soccer game and with our kids and watching the little horde of kids that run around in a circle around one ball and the ball just kind of squirts out occasionally and, and someone goes, you know, this time is going to go by so quickly. You're going to miss it when it's gone. I thought, you don't live in my house. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that's the case, but sure enough, it did. And there was a point along the way that our children started to not want to be in our house quite as much. They got a little taller. Their voices started to change. In fact, they grew taller than me and didn't want to be around us nearly as much as they had. And we kept leaning in and leaning in. We wanted to see them. And all that we had hoped for was that they would grow up into a mature, godly men. That's what we hoped for, for sure. And we watched it happen. And along the way, they'd make mistakes and we'd give corrections. And then the day came with each of them that we sent them off. It was time for them to go. And, and I, I have to tell you, there are these questions that you begin to ask yourself when that happens. Did I do enough? Did we teach them enough? Did they have what it takes? And I would write letters. If you don't know this about me, I do write letters. And sometimes if it's a graduation letter I've written for your kids, they're 12 pages long of advice and things that to hold on to. And and as we go into this summer and our go kids go off and we see them at times have made mistakes, at times have made great decisions and become more and more transformed into the image of Christ, we, we see this maturity that God is growing in them. 
But as I think about this, I think about how heartbreaking it would have been had they not grown and matured. Had they stayed around and still wanted us to feed them and not do anything for themselves and still act like children. Because if that was the case, then we hadn't done our jobs very well. We hadn't seen them grow into maturity. And I think that would be heartbreaking. If they needed our care, of course we'd give it to them. But we don't raise children to be children. We raise our children to become adults, to be mature, to be self-sufficient, to walk with the Lord. And that's exactly what God wants for us. If we look, he did not create us to stay as we are. He created us to transform us. I'm going to give you a few verses that kind of point to this. In Hebrews, it says this, Hebrews 6.1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Colossians 1, 28, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But solid food is for the mature. In Hebrews 5.14 it says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. God designed us to mature, to grow in our faith, to be more and more transformed into his image. And as we enter into this summer, we're going to be going through the book of Philippians. Um, That's going to be our course and I wonder often, as we look at different epistles, as we look at the book of, to the church at Philippi, what Paul was feeling, because this is the church that had matured. This is the church that was living it out, that had established some grounding and foundations in Christ. These were his partners. And so as he writes this letter, as he sits in prison, I'm curious to to wonder and wonder what he must have felt about them. And we get a great indication as we read this. Now, you may know Philippians. You may know everything about it. You may know little bits. Likely, you probably have seen some verses along the way. This is the book with four chapters that probably has more coffee cups with verses on it than any other book in the Bible. Lots of coffee cup and t-shirts have Philippians on it. Let me give you a few thoughts. Um, How about to live as Christ, to die as gain? Or your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What about this one? I consider all things rubbish compared to their surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These are just a few. There are many, many more. And as we go through this book, it's going to be this beautiful picture that Paul weaves together of this maturity of these verses that encourage. As we begin this, There's a different tone in the book of Philippians than there are the other epistles. Even though Paul is in the Roman jail and nearing the end of his ministry, he's still hopeful and grateful and is clinging to the hope of the gospel. This letter is considered by many scholars to be the New Testament letter of joy. The word joy and its variants occur 16 times throughout four chapters, culminating in chapter four's resounding rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. One of the reasons we selected this book is because it is themes of joy, thanksgiving, peace, and maturity that become the hallmarks. All of these things, the peace, 
joy, thanksgiving become hallmarks of our maturity and growth in Christ. It differs differently from the other letters that Paul wrote to churches that, pl- that he planted. And this isn't to say that he didn't love the other churches just as much, but those letters were, had a different tone. They were littered with the do this and don't do that. Stop this and start doing that. Their warnings and cautions of fail- falling away and believing a false gospel and bad theology. In Philippians, there are instructions and some corrections, but this is a letter that is covered with favor and provide the best picture of a mature church. It's similar to our children. They mature at different paces in different ways, and it doesn't mean that we don't love them equally. It means that we care for them differently, and Paul knew that. As he writes this letter, he begins the epistle much like the other letters, and he states who he's writing to, where he is, what he's writing about, um, And then in verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul begins this letter with thanksgiving, which is one of the purposes for writing this letter. He thanks God every time he remembers this church in Philippi. This is quite the accolade for this church. By contrast, he opens the letter with the Galatians. I mean, I'm picking on the Galatian church, but, you know, says this, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. To the Philippian church, he said, I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul's not playing favorites. He just needed to rebuke the church in in the Galatian church because he loved them also. And sometimes we need that correction. But the Philippian church, he's encouraging. He's giving them praise. In verse four, it says, in all my prayers for all of you, I'll always pray with joy. There's so many alls in this, if you think all, always, always. In all his prayer for all of them, he always prays with joy. The Philippians brought Paul joy as he thought about them and their maturity and how they'd grown, the time that he had spent with them. And he says this, he brings them joy because of the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And this word partnership in the original text, it really might not mean as much to us now, but then it meant um, is used an intimate bond of fellowship which unites us in Christ. There's an intimate bond of fellowship that unites all of us as Christians. It should bring us joy. There's an intimate bond um, that we hold on to, and it even becomes more important as we live out the gospel together in a church body like we are in. Paul knew this church intimately, and they supported him over and over. Throughout all the years he had known them, for about 10 years at this point, they were fellowshipping with him, sending money, clothes, people, anything they could help him to preach the gospel. They were a constant source of encouragement to Paul, and therefore a constant source of joy to him. How do we live amongst each other? Paul's joy for them led to a joyful hope and a beautiful truth. Verse 6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Sounds like another coffee cup that I have. Paul had confidence in this fact that he was absolutely convinced, completely trusted that this would happen. If you believe in the gospel, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sins and confessed with your mouth a belief in your heart that Jesus is Lord, The good work has begun in you. 
Ephesians 2, 3, and 5 says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Paul did not say he completed a good work in you, but he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And that's for each of us. We're not completed. God is still doing work. These are not empty words or promises. Paul is truly convinced and confident that God is working and will complete his work in believers. In verse 7, it says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Do you hear that, church, as we are believers, that we share in the grace of God together? We are brought together. God is working in us and completing us moving us and transforming us more into his image. When Paul says it is right, he is justifying what he said. To give further assurance to the church, he has them in his heart, meaning he loves them. And you can see why. Whether he's been in prison or out preaching the gospel, they've supported him. When he suffered, they suffered with him. We will see later in this, as we study over the summer, that they were also undergoing persecution at this time. Yet they still sent gifts and Epaphroditus to Rome, to him in Rome. Paul also mentioned in chapter 4 that when he left Macedonia, no other church except for the church in Philippi shared the matter of giving and receiving. Paul was very sure of that by participating in Christ's sufferings, we will know the power of his resurrection. We do that as believers, don't we? We enter in. We enter into the sufferings of the people around us, of the people that we care for, the people that God's bonded us together. It makes us stronger. We show vulnerability. We care at the depths of our heart for the people around us and for the world that's outside of these walls. The grace Paul received from God, this assurance of salvation, he could confidently say belonged to the Philippians also. And because they were so willing to give themselves for the cause of the gospel together with Paul, there was a special place in his heart for them. But his love was deeper than that. It wasn't just the love that we say, someone, I love you, and has no meaning. It was a deep love. In fact, it says a human, a deeper than just a human affection. It says he loved them as Christ loved him, and Christ loved them at verse 8, it says, God can testify how long, how I long for you or I yearn for you, for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. In 1 John 4, 12, it says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. He loved them with the same love that Jesus had for them. This is a reason for his confidence and joy. Is it a reason for our confidence and joy? That Jesus loves us, that he sent his son for us, that he through his infinite grace, has saved us. This word affection that he speaks of is not just a small word. It's from the depths of who you are. It's from the gut. It's a love that's felt deep in our hearts. This is the love that God has for us, that he sent his one and only son into the world to save us. 
This love that Paul had was not a love that came from within himself. We can't manufacture a love that comes that deeply. It's the love of Christ that is in us. An unselfish love, even to our enemies. When you realize, when I realize, when we realize how much Christ loves us, that he gave himself for us on the cross, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, essentially, you will find joy and love others the same way when we have a comprehension of, the, of that. If you were ever curious how you can pray for other people, this is great because I love reading this prayer over and over. It's this beautiful prayer that Paul has, and it says um, in verse 9, And this is my prayer that you may love, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight. Remember, the church at Philippi is a mature church. And they've already shown great love. And he's not telling them they need to give more love. This is actually about receiving. That the love that they receive from God, from their relationship with Christ, will overflow from them. That they will receive and that overflow will allow them to give. The love that is in their heart doesn't just stop there. It abounds. More and more, it overflows from the heart outwards to the world. It's an amazing and wondrous thing about God, isn't it? And his love for us, there's no limit. None. And it can grow more and more throughout our lives, throughout our relationship as he transforms us. Verse 10 and 11 tells us the kind of knowledge that we should acquire and the effects of it. That is the knowledge that enables us to discern what is right and good and bad, right and wrong, lawful and unlawful. What knowledge could possibly equip us to do such a thing? It's the knowledge of God found in the Holy Scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Through God's word, I'm reminded of God's long-suffering, his patient love, my sin is exposed. His grace is poured down. I'm comforted by that grace, by his word that he's given us. That every word comes from his mouth. His breath is spoken into his word in his scripture. By his word, I'm reminded that I ought to love others also. Think of the gospel reading today. And so effect is... And so the effect is life not perfectly righteous, but growing more and more in righteousness day by day. And when the Holy Spirit makes you fruitful, he doesn't just make a couple of things pop up. He fills us. Verse 11 says, you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And all this for one end, for this one purpose, the glory of God. When God is glorified, we can rejoice. God has given us so many reasons to glorify him. Look at the lives around us. The celebration of all that God's done right here in this place. And the saints that, he, that Paul refers to at the beginning of this book, the saints, the deacons and the overseers, that's all of us. God is glorified in this place through the lives of the people that follow him that he's transforming. Jesus loved us with such an affection, he laid down his life for us, and the Holy Spirit cleanses us 
and guides us and produces in us, in us a fruit of righteousness, what is there not to give God thanks for? It is our very life that we have to give thanks for. And in addition to all of this, he gives us one another to enter in, to help one another, encourage one another, to love one another. I want you to think about the world that we live in today. A recent survey showed that after, in 2020, after kind of the COVID study, um, and this has been brought up before, but the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago in 2020 said Americans are the unhappiest we've been in 50 years. Stress, loneliness were among the top reasons. But in the gospel, we have the answer. We have hope. We don't cling to the things of this world. We cling to Christ. Remember, as we read through this over time, Paul was writing this from prison. He was awaiting trial to testify before Caesar. The Philippian church was being persecuted at the same time, but Paul wrote this letter exuding joy. How come? Because of the fellowship of the believers and the love of Christ. Do we exude that joy? Do we exude that joy? And the confidence of knowing where our salvation comes from and the God that we serve. So as we embark on this journey through Philippians over the next couple of months, let us as a community of believers learn to love one another more deeply. Help one another. Encourage one another for the sake of God's glory. It's not about us. It's about him. Our church motto, you see it on everything, is um, you are loved. But what is that love? And what does it look like in a body of believers? Is it just being nice to one another, smiling pleasantly? No, it's much more than that. Much more than that. And as we go through this, and I think as we study this, we'll have a clear understanding of that as this letter encourages us and pushes us more towards Jesus and more towards each other. Paul mentions the day of Christ twice, and until then we might be tried and tested, but trust in God in all circumstances. And he will continue to grow us more and more into his image. So let's reach out to the lonely. Listen to the distressed and and pray for one another. Meditate on God's love that your love may abound and overflow even beyond our church as we enter into this partnership of the sharing of the gospel that our God might be glorified. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.